Welcome to the Palladium Podcast, Episode 3. I'm Jonah Bennett, Editor-in-Chief of the Magazine. Hey everyone, I'm Ash Moulton, Managing Editor. And I'm Wolf Tyvee, Editor. This week, uh, we're going to be joined by Miguel Morel, who wrote the recent on-the-ground Venezuela article for Palladium. Uh, but just before we get into that interview, we're going to do our classic question of the week. Very we traditional. Have, very traditional. We always have uh, readers email in what they'd like to hear us talk about. So this week, uh, it's going to be Andrew Yang's presidential run. And basically, regarding his UBI proposal, what would you spend your Yang bucks on? Your $1,000 a month. Okay, so uh, as a good millennial, I would spend it on traveling because experiences and pictures of me touching elephants cannot hyperinflate. <laughs> okay, Wolf? Um, yeah, I mean, to be honest, I'd have to spend it on food and clothing for my family. Okay, that's modest. That's modest. That's a good goal. And saving, uh, of course. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'd probably spend it on on buying a tiny house in Alabama so I could sustain my uh, Guild Wars 2 addiction indefinitely. Miguel? Honestly, I'd probably probably buy some Bitcoin to hedge against the money that's coming off the printing press. Okay, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. But that's enough of that. Let's get on to the next topic the actual interview itself. Uh, Miguel, could you just introduce yourself to our listeners a bit with a about a 30-second autobiography? Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm Miguel Morel. Uh, I'm a tech entrepreneur who currently lives in the, in the Bay Area. Uh, I spend my time working on a company called Reserve. We're essentially trying to create a, uh, a autonomous collateral-backed currency that could work as a, as a substitute for currencies for countries with a failed monetary policy. So essentially being able to uh, offer an alternative store of value and means of exchange for uh, people who are living under hyperinflation and also businesses who are doing uh, foreign exchange, foreign transactions, uh, and, and also treasury management uh, in, in currencies that are depreciating very rapidly. Excellent. Thanks for that intro. Uh, well, let's get started with the, the piece itself. Uh, obviously, it's a fantastic read. Uh, very stylistically well done. Uh, why don't you, so you went to, can you tell us all the, the countries you ended up going to? Yeah, so um, during my trip in South America, I spent probably about 10 days uh, in Argentina. Uh, and then I also spent roughly the same amount of time uh, in Colombia. And both of those times I was in the capital, uh, which are Buenos Aires and uh, Bogota, respectively. And, and uh, why don't you tell us some of the, the interviews you had in Argentina? Let's start with Argentina um, and, get, and get some background of, of your experiences there. Yeah, sure. So uh, Argentina is an interesting place. So uh, within Argentina, there's, there's been a lot of inflation for you know, the past r roughly two decades. Uh, and there's an interesting thing, which is that uh, it, it also has very high capital controls. That's something that you you tend to see in a lot of these countries. But uh, recently, President Macri, uh, who, who's a more conservative president who who tends to be against capital controls, uh, has essentially relieved the country uh, of a lot of those practices, and now has essentially said it, it's fine to hold U.S. dollars. Um, so you know, you go you go to Argentina, you go to uh, a 
street called Calle Florida, um, and you'll see a whole bunch of people who, like they're selling drugs or something, are just on the corners, everywhere on the street, uh, yelling dollars, dollars, essentially, you know, dollars, dollars, uh, and they just have stacks and stacks of bills and dollars and euros uh, and Brazilian reals um, that they can sell to people in exchange for, for Argentine pesos. So uh, I basically got to go um, and, and meet with some of those people and try to understand more about you know, what it is that they're doing in order to combat the hyperinflation scenario. Uh, and along the way, I met a lot of people who um, you know, left Venezuela in, you know, for a better life in Argentina uh, and have now, with all of their expertise in how to handle deflating or inflating currency, um, have been able to make small businesses out of that. Actually, that was that was one of my favorite interviews in the story itself. Uh, the woman you spoke to in Argentina and how uh, she she escaped Venezuela. Actually, could you could you recount that? Yeah, sure. So um, while I was in Argentina, I. You know, you sort of go, you don't really know anyone, and then you start meeting people, you talk to your Uber drivers, et cetera. And what I noticed is that they're, you know, they're really happy to tell you their story and, you know, make introductions to other people. So um, while I was there, I, I got to talk to, you know, one of the Uber drivers, uh, and he essentially told me that he, he had a friend who had come from Venezuela. I was telling him I was interested in, in interviewing them. Uh, and, and he put me in contact with her on WhatsApp. And then, you know, we got to meet at a restaurant and she she told me her story. And um, uh, essentially the way she described it was that, you know, Venezuela was a, a great country to be in. Uh, she, she absolutely loved it. And then things just sort of started to collapse all around her. So um, while she was there, she decided that the thing to do was instead of holding, you know, Venezuelan bolivars, the thing she wanted to do was leave her job and instead become employed uh, as a contractor for uh, an international business from uh, the United States. Um, and, and that way she could get paid in U.S. dollars so in a way where her currency wouldn't rapidly devalue. So what ended up happening was she she ended up applying, she got the job, uh, and then from there uh, she started doing business development work and, and getting paid in U.S. dollars. Uh, and during that time, she, she wanted to save enough money to be able to get her, uh, I, I think her sisters and and her mother out of the country, um, and then you know one day she was just walking in the middle of the shopping center in downtown Caracas, and she bought an ice cream cone for herself. And then as you know, as soon as she turned around, uh, someone was behind her and you know pointed a gun in her face uh, and told her you know you know give me the ice cream. I mean it sounds ridiculous, but uh, it, th this is the world that they're living under. Um, so after that, she you know. She, she gave it up. She went home and she packed all her things and said, I'm, I'm getting out of here. I'm going to Argentina um, and then I'll send as much money as I can and then I'll get you out later. Um, and so she did. She went on the long road there. Wait, so she had when the you know ice cream cone was lifted off of her, had she already licked it? I mean, I have no idea. We didn't go into that much detail. I was more okay. interested in, in how she actually got out of the country. Measuring I desperation was, levels. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's, that, used, that was the point of the question. used ice cream cone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just to be clear, used ice cream cone. Okay. Yeah. So okay. uh, I, I was more interested in, you know, how, how the hell she even got out of the country. Right, right, right. Um, so let's move to to Colombia. You were there uh, at the uh, refugee camps in, in Bogota. Mm -hmm. um, I, I would love to hear your your interactions with with uh, the refugee in particular who had a run in with the Chavista paramilitary. 
Yeah, sure. So um, as I explained in the piece, when, when we got to the refugee camp, it's sort of like uh, walled off, though not with walls, with fences. And then they sort of like have tarps that don't allow you to see on the inside. Uh, there's only one entrance to the camp, uh, and it's by like steel door that's protected by guards. So um, as soon as I got out of the taxi, I sort of got swarmed by a whole bunch of people who were, you know, interested in whether or not I had any food for them or whether or not I had clothing. I mean, you know, relative to the other people uh, in that general area, I was, you know, well-dressed and didn't look like one of them, of course. So I, uh, I I went up to the door and I I go inside uh, and the, and the guards are, you know, they're basically, we're having a negotiation about whether or not they'll let me in, et cetera. Uh, And then eventually I'm like, all right, whatever, I'll just talk to the people outside um, so I go outside and, you know, the person who stood out the most, of course, was, you know, the, the man who was, he was missing a leg. I mean, he was, he was on crutches. Um, and so I, I went up to him and I, you know, asked him if he'd be willing to, you know, tell me a bit about, uh, how, how he got to the camp and, you know, what he's doing right now. And, uh, he basically told me his story. And in, in essence, the story is he, he lived in the province of Maracaibo, uh, in Venezuela and, uh, essentially, he worked for a local opposition leader. He mentions his name. I, I, I don't really remember. Um, but he said that he, w- he was just warned so many times by family members and friends. Um, and then, you know, one day uh, he was driving back. He, he had actually dropped off his boss. Uh, he dropped off his boss at his house. Uh, and then he started driving back home. Eventually, he was going down uh, one of one of these roads without any lights. The infrastructure was already decaying at the time. Um, and then a car pulled up uh, in front of him as he was driving, and he stopped, of course. Um, and then, you know, they ambushed his vehicle. It, I just wanted to add, it, it strikes me with that incident, right? Because uh, I, I'm... Didn't we didn't really get in the piece to say, I think, was this one of the collectivos or not? But the fact that this level of conflict on the streets between normal people is happening right we discuss how it's like highly unlikely that these groups are going to back any kind of american-backed government right if that scenario unfolds and like this is why how you, you can't just make peace with your neighbors that easily when this is the sort of conflict that's been going on with them over the years yeah, it's not like the police are in control of the country and you can just give them different orders or something. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, the police as well have been on one, you know, they've been on a side in throughout all of this, right? So uh, it that I saw people on social media responding to the piece, commenting on uh, this incident in particular. Uh, and it just goes to, yeah, it, it sort of goes to show just the, the day-by-day level of conflict going on. Yeah, it shows you sort of like the who, who's actually exerting the force, right? So um, there, the, there's a central operation that's happening with the with the Maduro regime, uh, and then you know basically in the piece we go through how there's more of a decentralized network as well of different paramilitary officers um, who you know those are the people who will exert force. It doesn't necessarily have to be people in uniforms, right? It could be colectivos, someone on a motorcycle wearing camo. Um, it's quite decentralized and, uh, you know, speaking to a couple different people there, you know, there's one thing that's made clear, which is a lot of the time it it doesn't matter. It's not like America where you, you know, you go from New York to Philadelphia to Boston and you know that there's going to be some sort of centralized network of Boston PD, NYPD, Philadelphia PD. 
you know, in some parts of Venezuela, it's just whoever's around, right? It's just whoever can can have the most arms and exert the most force. Um, so it, it's not necessarily the most safe place. Yeah, and I remember in, in the piece we had cited, uh, I think it was the New York Times saying uh, around 10% of the cities in Venezuela are actually just under the control of uh, the colectivos or one or another right. of these armed groups, right? Not even the, the Venezuelan state proper. Yep. Well, this is interesting. It sort of uh, gets into one of the big weaknesses in the American regime building schemes, uh, which is like America's military has been quite good at, you know, toppling a centralized regime and taking over such things or like, you know, supporting an alternative party within a generally functional regime. But but I can't really think of any examples where um, the, sort of the U.S. has successfully managed to go into a place where the regime kind of doesn't really exist or isn't really in control and actually build order or even succeed at pacifying the place. Because well, this it, is the like, ongoing problem, right? That the U.S. is very good at like leveling a regime, but they aren't actually able to do state building afterward. Uh, Libya, right, but, Iraq, Syria... Yeah, like if there's if there's some central target, it's like, okay, well, you know, the U.S. military can cut the head off, whatever the thing is. But if it's actually not, uh, you know, shaped like Germany in World War Two, then they they don't really know how to deal with it. And and like you notice this in the Iraq war, like, you know, we treated we treated Saddam's thing that way. Right. It's like, okay, we go in, we bomb the hell out of their military. We bomb the hell out of all their stuff. We find Saddam. We execute him you know, we, we break, break up their regime and then we're like, all right, now what? Yeah, and, and, and we don't really have get practice for that. Everyone who actually sort of knows how to run the country at right? the debathization uh, right. project that they had there. I think, I think in this case, uh, potential threats of a, of a U.S. invasion of Venezuela are just more or less saber rattling and uh, playing to domestic politics. Because yeah. there's sort of a, 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 a ideological antipathy between the two systems in the U.S. Uh, I, I guess can't show any weakness vis-a-vis uh, Chavismo. So they have to pretend as though they're, they're, you know, there's a live possibility that they might, in fact, invade Venezuela. And I don't think that's, that's really a live option at all. Uh, and, and just in case, though, we, we made sure to do some uh, military analysis of what it would look like to do an actual and you know perhaps an amphibious lab uh, landing in Venezuela and then you know a toppling of the regime which you know of course could be done but then there's the question of uh sorting out the rest of Venezuela which as we've noted is uh, much of it's controlled by warlords at this point in in thick jungle and so it you know in terms of just looking at the situation in national interest it's not exactly clear why we would care to do that. The oil is, is not the greatest quality. There, there's a lot of it. It's not the greatest quality. It's much more difficult to extract. Um, the humanitarian case, I suppose, is, is, is interesting. But then again, there, there are humanitarian reasons for probably invading uh, much of the world because much of the world is run by incompetent governments. Uh, so, so then it's... Yeah, well, the, the other thing is the humanitarian case, of course, only works out if you can actually set up a better regime and and so far like the humanitarian case for the last few u.s-led invasions has just not panned out 
Not at all. No, no. Yeah, and they, so they, they rather give up the land to rebels, ISIS, etc., as opposed to you know they they don't they never actually set up a functional regime. Yeah, there there was actually a question I had for you, Miguel. So in the piece, you talk about how in these like currency exchange networks, uh, you, you talk to people and sort of in the broader uh, people who have left Venezuela. You were talking to people who were very anti-Chavez, but you also interview, interviewed a uh, Chavista. So it's interesting that you have, you know, American coverage, Western coverage. It focuses on this, like, ideological bent to the conflict that's happening there. But just like in the piece, we talk about how some of the state crises that are happening have afflicted multiple successive governments the way that citizens are actually routing around those problems, it's interesting to me that that includes people from the various political factions in the country itself. And I'm just interested to hear, were, like, given that you have these, like, Chavistas, these anti-Chavistas, does this ideological stuff even seem to come up from what you, from the interactions you had when they're doing business, so to speak, when they're just engaged in these uh, uh, ventures to route around government failure? Yeah, so so that's a good question. Um, I don't think I. Let's see. Yeah, so they're basically all in it together. I think is the is the main point. So when you talk to them about what's actually going on in their country, the ideology stuff comes later. They're more interested in letting you know, you know, the place is completely destroyed. The infrastructure is failing. The money doesn't work, you know, preserving enough money to feed yourself, um, that doesn't just divide along party lines. It, it's sort of just, you know, we're all in this together. And, uh, you know, just yesterday uh, and today is when I saw the, the, the headlines, you know, all of Venezuela just, you know, all the electricity is cut off. At that point, it doesn't matter whether or not you're a Chavista, whether or not you're pro-US, whether or not you're pro-Maduro. It just doesn't matter. You just don't have any electricity um, there's no air conditioning, uh, and, and everything is terrible. Um, at, at that point, I think you know. At, at that point, you're you're just trying to survive. Mm. Um, so I, I didn't quite see any sort of like battles or arguments between chavistas and, and non-chavistas, uh, especially like within the refugee camps. It was just sort of like, how are we going to make enough money to survive and then be able to send remittances back home to our families? Um, and then the ideology stuff sort of comes later. This, so this was interesting. Um, so regarding the electricity, uh, there's the question of, of whether it's uh, a, a random equipment failure, whether it's sabotage, whether it's incompetence. Um, and I wouldn't necessarily immediately write off the sabotage angle. And I, I think this came up in your interview with, with Victor, uh, the, the Chavista, who uh, blamed the U.S. for a lot of the problems in in Venezuela, and so s some amount of that is is cope for the the incompetence of the Maduro regime. Clearly, but but also it's not like he's wrong to be paranoid. I think we shouldn't write off that that paranoia because it just is the case historically that the U.S. has run uh, an, an an extremely high uh, number of covert operations in South America, and it does so frequently, and, it, and I'm, I'm sure it does so to this very moment. And uh, in, in fact, we are I interfering in Venezuela quite aggressively, uh, it is going so far as to cut off uh, access to Venezuela's foreign gold reserves and the Bank of England, as, as was noted in the piece. And so 
yes, there's there's paranoia, but it's it's it would be wrong, I think, to write it off as just as as just like pure schizophrenic rambling or something. Because when you when you don't know exactly uh, where the U.S. is intervening, but you know that they're intervening in some uh, some number of objects within some overall set, uh, then you tend to overfit. Uh, and over perhaps overestimate the amount of uh, foreign intervention, and so you sound a little bit crazy. But there, there is something. There is a a clear kernel of truth there. Yeah. So you know, one one interesting thing here is immediately after the blackouts happen, uh, you know, Maduro goes on Twitter and on national television, and he's like, "The United States did this." Uh, and then you know, there's now a Twitter war. It's like uh, Secretary Pompeo goes on Twitter. He says, "You know, the power outages." Uh, you know, this isn't because of the U.S. It's not because of Colombia. It's not Brazil or Europe or anywhere else. This is the Maduro regime's incompetence. Um, and in a certain respect, you know, uh, he, he's right. But I definitely don't think that we should be writing off the paranoia. Uh, on the other side, um, I, I also spoke with some refugees who had insight into the uh, problems with infrastructure in Venezuela. Uh, and one of the things that I was told was that uh, one of the refugees within his uh, native town, he remembered that there would be these gangs of people who would go around essentially tearing down all of the wiring and all of the electric infrastructure for the town. They would break it off, cutting off all electricity to the town, and then they would basically take all of the scrap metal, the copper, etc., and then sell it across the border in Colombia for money. So it could be that a lot of people, you know, of course, this is a, a nationwide outage, but uh, definitely it, I would not be very surprised if this meant that there were groups of people who are, are now taking apart centralized infrastructure that provides power to a lot of Venezuela in order to get some money on their hands by selling the scrap metal for, for cents on the dollar. And interestingly enough, that's that's also a problem in the U.S. Uh, stripping infrastructure for for copper, for example. The difference, of course, though, is that I think we have a fairly strong and robust centralized enforcement uh, object. So uh, we actually have the ability to to clamp down on that and prosecute. Whereas in Venezuela, uh, I think a lot of parts are just up in the air, up for grabs. Right, and, and like I mentioned in the piece, with some of these places, I mean, the people are just straightforwardly trading in gold. It could be that taking all the electric wiring just means, you know, there's, you know, there's the equivalent of dollars in there, you know. <laughs> so uh, sometimes it, it might make sense to actually just go and, and take it all down, even if it means you won't have electricity until someone fixes it. Yeah, after after endless bleeding about uh, hyperinflation scenarios in the U.S., it's always interesting to to visit a country where where that's actually been realized. Where there actually is hyperinflation, and and all of the the different scenarios of trading in gold, trading in in uh, you know Bitcoin, trading in in, in Litecoin, and all these basically any other random cryptocurrency that's almost valued at at nothing would actually uh, make sense as a medium of exchange in Venezuela, which goes to show you how just how bad uh, the Maduro government has 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 been doing in terms of engendering trust for its for its governance uh, and even their attempt at a at a state-backed cryptocurrency to sort of undercut some of these transactions it, it hasn't gone well at all if you know Miguel if you want to speak to to the the cryptocurrency the Petro that would be useful 
Yeah, of course. So um, in terms of the usage of you know Bitcoin and whatnot that I've seen, one thing that stands out is that within Venezuela uh, and within Argentina, so these places that, that are actually experiencing uh, hyperinflation, one of the main problems is that, you know, they also might not have access to internet, for example. So uh, with something like a cryptocurrency, uh, there's a question of whether or not they, they even have the relevant uh, infrastructure to where if they had all of the money on their computer or on their cell phone or something, whether or not the infrastructure is in place for them to be able to successfully continually use that. There is one thing of note, though, which is that their expertise about cryptocurrency is much better than what it is in the West. Within Argentina and, and lot, lots of Venezuelans that I met, they essentially had all heard of cryptocurrency. Um, they, they may not have known specific names. A lot of them knew about Bitcoin uh, and Ether, um, and surprisingly, even uh, in the case of Venezuelans, Dash. Um, and, and they were very knowledgeable as to the fact that it was you know, digital money, it didn't have any government backing, uh, that sort of thing. But they were extremely skeptical of the Petro. Uh, and the main reason is because uh, the government has screwed them over on so many other things. Why, why would they not try to screw them over with the, with the new currency? So even with the old, they couldn't even get the old currency to work. And that was just printing money. Uh, so, so when they hear that the government has successfully created some sort of crazy alien algorithmic backed stablecoin, uh, it, it just doesn't make any sense to them. So um, it, they're, they're rightly so, they're highly skeptical of anything that the government is promoting, uh, including the petrodollar. As usual, um, I think this proposal does make some sense in, in the abstract, especially if you're trying to maintain a measure of autonomy and, and circumvent U.S. sanctions and, and trying to avoid using uh, U.S. influenced international financial systems like SWIFT for for uh, high volume transfers, um, but of course I think the problem here, uh, like in many of many other uh, domains the government has touched, not only did Venezuela require outside help uh, to develop the cryptocurrency uh, from the Russians specifically, but the the execution seems particularly incompetent. So I would say, you know, they have a lot of a lot of the right ideas but the problem is that is that their actual their their ruling class is so it's it's degenerated to the point where they're they're unable to pull themselves out of out of the mess they're in so maybe you know prospects for outside intervention or or coups aren't particularly high but i i would be curious you know to brainstorm on internal scenarios of, of reform to restore trust in the government. Well, one of the things that I think is worth mentioning here is like the, the case for cryptocurrencies uh, as a state, uh, state currency doesn't really make sense. Um, the point of a state currency really is that you can have independent monetary policy Basically, that the the monetary policy uh, and and the capital flows are going to be controlled by a central actor. And the point of a cryptocurrency is that you have, um, you know, a fixed monetary policy. Like, for example, you know, a fixed inflation or like Bitcoin, no inflation, um, and and that no one can control the capital flows. And so, like, 
Um, so the the sort of the thing that I think is happening with the the state cryptocurrencies is probably just you know someone's getting scammed there, uh, and, and someone's trying to scam someone. It's unclear like how many people are. There's probably sort of more people trying to scam someone uh, th than just like the one. Like, you know, maybe the, the Russian guys who help out Venezuela are actually just like, you know, a bunch of Russian hackers and they're just, you know, found a business opportunity to, you know, do an ICO in Venezuela's name. And like the Venezuelan state's trying to scam the people. And, you know, it, like the, the thing doesn't really fundamentally make sense. So a lot of the players are just going to be kind of sharks. Um, and And so... It, the interesting thing there, though, is the comment about the a country like Venezuela wanting to break out of U.S.-controlled traditional financial infrastructure. And that's something where a cryptocurrency might actually make sense. But in that case, you'd, like, you'd want to go for an established cryptocurrency or something that's really competently executed and proven rather than trying to like spin up some new thing like if you're spinning up some new thing the overwhelming like overwhelmingly likely case is you're just trying to get free money out of an ico um which i i don't know if this is uh this is what the venezuelan state um was trying to do but like it seems very likely they kind of like come up with this idea right at the height of the crypto bubble you know um and, and, and currencies themselves, uh, you know, we, we can't forget that the currencies are sort of a, a lever of power for for governments generally. So, for example, um, you could think of currency not not only as a as a means to control what people can and cannot you know purchase within the economy within your own bounds, but you know, keep in mind that the government also has the power to limit the amount of external currency that you're actually bringing into the country through capital control. So. You know, one interesting thing that comes to mind here is uh, lots of different African countries, for example, like Angola, uh, in order to prevent people from bringing in external currencies that might cause their currency to inflate or devalue, uh, they put capital controls on the amount of money that you can actually bring into the country. So you can imagine uh, lots of different Chinese companies who are looking to do foreign direct investment uh, in into Africa, part of their new one belt, one road project. They want to, you know, help and develop tons of infrastructure for the relevant African countries. Um, and then uh, as they're bringing money into the country, since the, the only way, you know, the government says you're not allowed to purchase things within Angola using Chinese yuan or U.S. dollars, you have to spend your local expenses in Angola and Kwanzaa. Uh, you know, where's the way you get Angola and Kwanzaa? Well, it's through the central bank. They're the ones with this printing press. So, you know, you as a Chinese company, you're looking to do foreign direct investment um, and, and then they give you a really terrible rate on on the angle and Kwanzaa that they're printing for you in order for you to spend it. So that that in a way is a, is a revenue stream for for the central banks and, and the governments, because they can then take the, the the currency they got with the really great exchange rate from their perspective and then turn around and sell it for for currency that is in Kwanzaa uh, at a much better price. So. Uh, by by implementing, you're right in that by implementing some sort of centralized cryptocurrency, you're you're removing one of the one of the levers of power for them. Well, and it also seems like because uh, as we were chatting, right, there've been uh, 
several countries which have thought about or tried to roll out some kind of state-backed cryptocurrency, but it also just doesn't seem to be the case that the actual incentives for people to make the jump to implementing crypto uh, in a business or just start using it exist when it's a state-backed uh, cryptocurrency. Yeah, well, it, it doesn't really make any sense, right? Like, is the reason the reason you would jump to a cryptocurrency is because it's got superior store value properties or something like no inflation, right? Um, and the reason a state would come up with a cryptocurrency is, well, so they can do things like print money. Um, so, yeah, I, I think the whole concept is kind of like a little bit confused. Uh, and, and that's why I sort of started talking about a scam, like scams there, because when you have confused concepts, that's where scams start to happen. Uh, do you not see a use case for uh, the cryptocurrency being the, the unit of account for a, a non-Western banking system? So, yeah, so th there is this this other scenario, which is what I was talking about with the like the externally origined uh, cryptocurrency. Like, let's say Venezuela wanted to regain uh regain trust and kind of get its financial situation under control outside of the U.S. Um, financial system. So, like, you know, I, I know Bitcoin. Uh, Miguel can tell us a little bit about reserve. But in, in the Bitcoin case, like what, what they could do is um, they say, OK, well, now we're going to start using Bitcoin. Bitcoin is our money. Um, it's outside the U.S. financial system. It's got its issues, but you know we're going to make a big bet on Bitcoin that this will help make us rich or something. So they they make a big purchase into Bitcoin. They start using Bitcoin. Um, the the thing that that does is um, like it, let's say you had like a really competent core uh, core leadership and they wanted to get the rest of the state in line. Uh, in Venezuela. I don't think this is actually the case, but this is like Bitcoin is sort of one of the things that could help with this because what Bitcoin does is it, it really removes a huge piece of like the dimensionality of the problem. It's it's like it, when you have a failed state or, or a state that has internal conflict, which is very often the case, it's not necessarily the case that you actually want to maximize the power of the state like like it's not necessarily the case the core executive wants to maximize the power of the state often what they're interested in is is reducing the dimensionality of the problem so they can maximize the coherence of the state um and i think things like bitcoin by just being completely impervious to to like corrupt uh manipulation now i don't know if bitcoin is exact you know the best example of this but as a general class of tactics um, by if you can switch the, the the whole dynamic of the system to something where you have um, you're you're reducing the dimensionality of the problem, you're reducing some whole dimension of corruption. A bunch of your internal enemies in the state uh, lose power. The state becomes more coherent. The state becomes more trustworthy because it no longer has has uh, these sort of vectors of abuse. Um, and that can actually be good for even the central actor within the state um, in cases where you have this, the state is actually a little bit incoherent and its primary interest is regaining coherence. So I think that's an interesting use case for things like Bitcoin in Venezuela for the Venezuelan state. 
Um, but I don't know if Bitcoin is necessarily the, the best thing there. There's still like a lot of uncertainties and so on. That would be a big bet. Um, but yeah, Miguel can tell us about reserve, which I think is also aimed at this problem. Yeah, so uh, w w with us, essentially, the the main thing we're trying to create is just a, a decentralized version uh, of something similar to Bitcoin that just doesn't have the volatility. So uh, like I mentioned in the piece, we've there's sort of like an established, you know, what are the things um, that a currency needs in order to actually reach them, the mass adoption and, you know, uh, store value, uh, unit of account, means of exchange, all the things we've discussed in the episode, these things are incredibly important. And something like Bitcoin, uh, you know, I've heard the Bitcoin maximalist arguments. Um, I, you know, I can buy into the fact that in, in many years to come, there, there will be a, a demand for sort of like a decentralized currency. Um, and, and hopefully it'll, it won't be as volatile once we, you know, Bitcoin max and Bitcoin's at a trillion dollars. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, until then, there's going to be lots of places with failed monetary policy, such as Venezuela, uh, where before hyper Bitcoinization, uh, they're, they're going to need an alternative. And since the, the government's blocking the stable currencies, such as the euro or the US dollar, uh, the way they can get their hands on that uh, will be through the internet. And right now, cryptocurrencies are just too volatile for them to, to, to want to use. Uh, but something like a, a more decentralized stable currency, um, I, I think could be the, the, the proper solution here. And, and let's not forget that even, even a country like Iran, once it was cut off the SWIFT network, you know, they also came out with their own, you know, Iran coin or, or, or whatever. So it seems like a, a kind of like a retaliation, if you will, um, for, for a lot of these different countries to be able to create their own, their own cryptocurrency, but re really, it's just sort of like a, a digital issuance of their own currency, akin to like you know a number you see within Chase Bank or something. It's not actually decentralized, right? Yeah, in the Iran case, but whereas I, I think again that the important thing in the Venezuelan case or other countries with a failed monetary policy or like a failing state is like you know if you're the central government there and you really want to get a handle on the situation, it can be rational to reduce the overall power of the state, but make the state more controllable, uh, more centrally controllable. And that's where things like cryptocurrencies can come in. That in interesting I think ways. gets us into the question, right, of when, which we addressed in the piece near the end, right, the more fundamental question of whether the Venezuelan state structure and the people manning it, what is the competency, where are the failure modes? Because if you look at any individual program, right, that the Venezuelan state has, be it state-controlled oil or social programs or things like this, there's plenty of examples that you can find of any one of those that are done successfully and without this failure mode. And so Venezuela has this convergence in a way of both its geopolitical position and the ideological stance it takes toward the United States, and then this total systematic mismanagement that went on, this oil dependency and so on. All of these things can converge together to create this current meltdown and this economic crisis. And near the end of the piece, right, we have this brief discussion about, is it possible, right? Because the Venezuelan regime, based on its ideology, its key mission, uh, insofar as you can talk about it, having one is maximizing, or maximizing rather, 
independence from the United States. And even within uh, the Chavez era itself, if you look at Chavez's early rhetoric versus the mid-2000s, the socialist elements come in a few years in, and they're justified on the grounds of this kind of national sovereignty idea, uh, you know, and, and, and this Bolivarian mission that he invoked for himself uh, on his road to power. And it basically opens up the question, right? Is it actually possible for Venezuela to do that? Can it be a sovereign state somehow that isn't ultimately just under U.S. influence? Uh, and essentially within Latin America, right, you can maybe think of Cuba that has sort of done that at the cost of being quite isolated in a lot of ways and under embargo and its economic development has been stifled. But it is theoretically possible that a government could say, fine, that's the cost or that's the price we'll pay. So I'm interested, uh, Miguel, in your reflection, like, is it actually possible to build a state that is not part of the U.S. liberal order global structure in a place like Venezuela? Yes. Yeah, so I think the answer here is the, the short answer is yes. Um, so if, if I break down my, my thinking on this, um, I, I'd say that it's sort of a, a, a situation where you kind of have to pick your poison. Uh, so if we think about the the major superpowers out right now, it'd be, you know, the United States, Russia and China. Uh, and from those, you can sort of pick your pick your poison, pick your block, whether or not you want to be in the in the Russia sphere of influence, uh, which is sort of now being taken over a bit more by the United States sphere of influence in, in Eastern Europe. Um, or whether you want to be sort of under the the Chinese sphere of in influence and you know pressure exerting there, uh, you know there's you can sort of even see the areas where uh, China and the United States are battling it out. One of these battlegrounds is is Taiwan, uh, and and it's not with aircraft carriers. I mean sometimes it is, uh, but you know more like you know we're building artificial islands here because this is our territory. And then the U.S. you know parks a, a massive destroyer like a couple miles away or something. Um, so you, you sort of have to pick what it is you want, but the two options I see here is, you know, if you want to maintain autonomy, um, outside of, of us influence, you either have to be the superpower itself, i.e. Russia or China, um, or you have to be isolated like one of these other countries who aren't superpowers, but have some sort of sense of autonomy, uh, off the top of my head, for example, uh, Venezuela, Cuba, uh, Iran, North Korea, uh, et cetera. But, you know, of course, they're incredibly socially isolated. The United States imposes sanctions and limits trade to these countries. Um, and, you know, that's sort of the trade-off you have to make. It's it's essentially quality of life or, or autonomy. Yeah, and it's worth places. noting Chavez himself had, uh, I think it was near the end uh, of his government uh, before he died, he had tried to start building up the Chinese relationship but, I mean, you know, we saw when Maduro took over how dependent Venezuela actually still was in the United States, right? Despite these 10 and more years of anti-American rhetoric. Uh, and we sort of point this out in the piece as well, right? Is uh, Venezuela was in this position where they were politically opposed to the, to the United States, but economically entirely dependent on them. And that in and, in and of itself is... Uh, I would say an example of incompetence or at least unwillingness 
to take the steps necessary given this mission that they were making the basis of their legitimacy. So I've got I've got actually one last question for for Miguel here. Uh, when you were interviewing um, Venezuelans in in Colombia and Argentina, did you get a sense of of how bought in they were to the idea of, of Venezuelan independence vis-a-vis the U.S. and and were they cognizant of how porous the state is uh, with regard to other countries? I mean, you know, maybe the conceit is that. You know, Venez- from their perspective, Venezuela is is uh, free of U.S. influence or trying to be free of in, uh, U.S. influence. But it's very clear that it, the state is very porous to, to China, to Russia. And in particular, what's usually underexplored is how um, owned Venezuela is by Cuba. I think I think a lot of people don't don't quite analyze that closely enough, except for I mean, Foreign Affairs did a really excellent piece on that, which we which we linked. But. Uh, Miguel, I'm curious on, uh, about your answer on that. Yeah, so the the topic of independence didn't really come up except for the people who I interviewed who happened to be Chavista. Um, so everyone else, I mean, they think the United States is great. I mean, I, I spoke with someone who, you know, I, I mentioned like, what is your, you know, what are you looking for? What are your goals? What What is your dream? Uh, and essentially, he, he just said, I just want myself and my family to be happy. And in you know, right now, what my family wants is if, if we had the opportunity would be to just, you know, move to Florida. Like I've been to Florida before, like this is someone who, you know, was able to travel internationally uh, and and yet was still sort of like destroyed by the by the incompetence of the of the state. Um, and, you know, they're very interested in just being able to, you know, if, if not exporting the culture and the way of life to Venezuela, they're just interested in, in straightforwardly moving to, to the United States. Or uh, in one case, someone told me they had family in Switzerland, for example, um, where independence of their country and autonomy is not even on their mind. They see the United States, they see Europe, uh, and they see a, a great society that has everything together and lives a really great life. And that's what they're looking for, essentially. Well, I think that's a, a good place to wrap up the interview. Thanks, Miguel, for, for coming onto the show. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Well, uh, I think we can move on to some discussion of the other articles we've since posted in between now and, and the last podcast. Ash, if you want to uh, take over discussion of the piece we posted on on russia that would be great yeah um so this is the piece how russia keeps post-soviet states in its orbit uh published on february 20th and this piece is interesting because it actually ties in i think to some of the same themes that venezuela was covering um you know it obviously even came up in the discussion at the end there right russia even now despite its weaknesses since the fall of the soviet union has more or less maintained political autonomy uh, from the United States, and that's only increased all throughout uh, Putin's reign in that country. And so this piece basically looks at the situation with a bunch of Russia's neighbors, because when the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, it Russia immediately lost formalized direct control over uh, a wide range of countries that were in the Soviet Union proper, and also then over a number of uh, Soviet-aligned countries that weren't part of the formal structure. 
Um, and obviously countries like Ukraine have been uh, quite prominent in the media, but a number of others don't really get looked at. And so the piece was asking, what is the grand strategy uh, that Russia is using to you know, maintain as much control as they can over this post-Soviet bloc? Because obviously certain countries, uh, like the Baltic countries, immediately went over into the Western sphere. You know, they they only came under Russian control as a result of uh, World War II, I believe. Um, and so they never had this deeper connection or loyalty uh, to Russia. And when the Soviet Union fell, right, there's always been discussion about what what kinds of deals had been made. You know, had Russia been promised that the West wouldn't expand up toward Russian borders? Well, whatever the facts behind that might be, um, NATO and the European Union immediately started going eastward. And finally, Ukraine itself, right, which uh, Russia is always viewed as uh, either a part of Russia or at least, you know, it's it's its backyard, uh, a country that's rightfully in the Russian sphere, historically speaking. Uh, they'll sometimes say in the Russian world. Uh, even Ukraine, uh, a government took control in that country, which saw Russia as a primary enemy and wanted to become part of the NATO sphere, part of the EU sphere. Um, and so there's some interesting things that come up in this piece which don't get discussed as much. Some which have actually come up in news recently, like the union state between Russia and Belarus. So uh, after uh, the Soviet fall, uh, Russia and Belarus actually signed this sort of treaty, which essentially the intention seemed to be that Belarus would ultimately become integrated into Russia. And it provided this framework for them to start integrating things like currencies. Uh, that's part of what's being discussed right now. But you know, this this was signed years ago, and in fact what's happened is that Belarus uh, has tried to take a stance where they've generally been viewed, you know, it's viewed as the last dictatorship in Europe and so on, but Belarus is increasingly suspicious of Russia and has been even more so since these incidents in Ukraine. So beyond that there's been all these different institutions that have been thrown up over time and then gone defunct where russia and other countries in the sphere try to rebuild some of this uh soviet bloc geopolitical power that existed in the past uh and ultimately the thesis of the piece is that what's ended up happening in practice is that be because less countries were involved in that to begin with than were part of the soviet bloc Russia's power relative to its neighbors within these institutions was already greater than it had been in the Soviet Union. And af especially after Ukraine, countries that hadn't already committed themselves to things like the Eurasian Economic Union were now pretty much committed to staying, uh, to at least balancing power against Russia, to not getting absorbed any further into the Russian sphere. And essentially, Russia's position now seems to be one where they're trying to consolidate power over these areas that they've managed to make to either have them commit themselves to Russia, places like Kazakhstan, or at least keep them isolated um, as with some of the other countries in the region so that they don't go over into Western control. Uh, and that, you know, ultimately, that's the piece's focus. So 
um, if we wanted to open that up to discussion, uh, because the comparison to Venezuela here, obviously, is that Venezuela, some overtures aside to places like China, did not join any kind of geopolitical bloc. Uh, but in this case, Russian power is to an extent actually alienating countries from making any kind of change in that sort of loyalty, even if maybe in terms of social values, right? They're they're still more similar to Russia, say they're more socially conservative. Um, so we can open that up to discussion. Well, to go back to something you said earlier, I think pers- perspectival thinking is is always helpful. Regardless of, as you said, regardless of whether there was an agreement or not about U.S. and NATO expansion eastward closer to Russia's borders and sphere of influence, it's almost immaterial at this point, you know, what the agreement said or whether there was one at all. I'm probably of the opinion that there was, in fact, an agreement not to push really far eastward. But uh, that's immaterial. If you imagine Russia parking an aircraft carrier off the coast of California uh, and there was some debate about whether we had uh, participated in an agreement or not. I think that's basically irrelevant. The fact is, uh, no, no uh, serious great power is going to uh, put up with an aircraft carrier that close off of their coast. And it's always funny uh, to to read press releases from the Pentagon about the interaction of their forces. Uh, with with Russia's planes, like you'll have uh, right near right near the borders, the Pentagon will be complaining about about Russian aircraft buzzing their ships. And, right, and, and the ships are in the Black Sea. Why are the ships in the Black Sea? <laughs> and it would be it, it it'd be and and it would be very strange if that were to happen off the coast of California. And you know our first. Our first point would be how would how could you know normal Russian people be duped by Russian government press releases that you know their innocent ship off of the coast of California had been buzzed by like horrible and evil oppressive uh, U.S. aircraft and yet we you know many people buy that same explanation uh, when it comes from from the Pentagon so clearly uh, you know there is some amount of of popular trust in what the Pentagon says still uh, with regard to that. But it just goes to show you how effective PR is still. Yeah, and, and I mean, let's let's be a little bit nuanced here with like, like people sort of just slavishly believe the propaganda that comes out of the, the American imperial state. But like that, that doesn't mean we should like, or, or like in calling that out and in in taking note of the fact that like the the, the situation's a little bit absurd and the propaganda's a little bit absurd like this doesn't mean we're necessarily uh like we, we shouldn't be necessarily opposed to the actual situation there because it's like look we're Americans it it actually maybe does make sense you know maybe if we think America is maybe too aggressive towards Russia or whatever but like you know, there is there is this point where it's like, yeah, we do want our aircraft carriers up in their business, uh, you know, making sure they know who's boss at some point. But like, it's just kind of weird that that like somehow the American discourse is such that we can't just say that and, and like that that can't just be the line. It's like, yeah, you know, we're over there in the Black Sea because America is extremely powerful and these guys are like defying us. Right. Um, and so we're going to we're going to do an equivalent of parking an aircraft carrier off the coast of California. 
it's um, not only America though that has the the PR problem here. So there's something that strikes me in this piece is how g- given Russia's let's call it delicate position, right? Where they're trying to get allies to commit themselves to mutual investment and economic building up. Countries that have other options, right? So Kazakhstan, for example, we've done a piece on them as well. Uh, They have this Russian relationship, but they've also built one with Turkey, with China, even with the West. And uh, there there was this incident recently where uh, Putin... Uh, I, I think after the Ukrainian crisis had broken out, so it was around 2014 or so, um, Putin was asked at an event whether Russia would ever consider uh, similar actions against Kazakhstan. And Putin's answer was basically, well, Kazakhstan has never really had a state. It was Nazarbayev, the, the Kazakhstani president, who created it from nothing. And obviously, uh, when the when Kazakhstan heard that answer, they immediately went on sort of uh, geopolitical red alert. They reasserted, we have the right to quit the Eurasian Union. We will never accept threats to our independence. And, and this is similar to what happened with Belarus in that um, it was after this rhetoric was coming out of Russia that Belarus started actually looking back at Europe and at least trying to thaw its relationship with them. And so Russia... There's sort of this ham-fistedness that they seem to be unable to avoid. You know, maybe they know something we don't, right? Because right now, there there seem to be actually positive meetings going on again between Russia and Belarus about increasing integration. But Russia... Russia is able to do what it does because it has a big landmass, it has this big military structure, it's retained and even rebuilt to an extent under Putin some of this uh, state sovereignty that it clearly possessed as the second superpower in the Soviet era. But in terms of its sphere of influence, it has never regained all of that space. And the Russian position, uh, as the piece points out, is essentially designed to that it can't expand any further than what it is now. Any country that's not already committed to Russia is either isolated or it's Western committed. No one's going to make that switch from Western commitment to Russia when they basically see that as an immediate uh, threat to their sovereignty. Yeah, I just want to uh, reiterate on the the question of empire uh, that part of the reason is for, for the for the PR is that People in the U.S. seem unable or unwilling to conceive of the U.S. as an actual imperial power. And so there's there's that aspect. And then there's the the aspect that according to, you know, U.S. influenced international norms, uh, being an empire and acting as an empire on the world stage is sort of like an illegitimate thing to do. It's not what you do. And so you basically have to. Uh, reframe all of your active interventions in other countries according to some weird PR logic of uh, defensive actions rather than aggressive actions and and so you never refer to it as as, um, uh, like trying to extract tribute and and subject your enemies to your own ideological system that you know of course it's never how you really frame it because if, if you were to frame it that way if you were to frame a lot of US actions uh, in some sort of very, very cold and clinical way, then it would be very clear, I think, that it is acting as an empire. But of course, it doesn't want to obviously appear le- illegitimate according to its own standards. And so that's where the, the, the PR tactics come in. Um, but 
you know, I'm not even talking about, I'm, I, I really am not that interested in, in the normative aspect of it so much. I'm not here to whine about the fact that the U.S. is an empire or something. I'm really just interested uh, in the empirical question of when you look at the U.S.'s actions, their foreign policy actions, uh, their track record over the past decade, uh, you know, their role in, in helping a lot of third world governments with training, quote unquote, training and advising, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I could go on and on about that. And you look at just a, a basic world map of, of U.S. bases around the world. It's, it's an empirical question. Is the U.S. an empire or not? And I think it's not useful to obsess too much about the normative, normative question and just to say, yeah, I think based on all these facts, uh, the best thing to, to do is just to admit that the thing is an empire. If the U.S. thinks it's in its interest not to say it's an empire, well, you know, that's that's its prerogative, I guess. But, it, you know, it's an incumbent on us to just call things as they are. I mean, no country. Look, I, I'm, I'm sitting here recording from Canada, right? Uh, there was a famous quote this a few decades ago from uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, who was uh, the prime minister at the time, saying that Canada's position was like a mouse beside an elephant, right? No, no country whose direct relationship is with the United States is any under illusion what the relationship is. And this comes out in like very funny and petty ways sometimes, right? Like I personally think a lot of this animosity that you get in especially places like Canada as well, or in places like Britain, uh, it's a sort of anti-Americanism that snipes at the U.S. as being, you know, they'll look at it as, oh, it's it's less culturally enlightened or something. But it really is uh, th this sniping from a position of powerlessness that actually comes out very weak at the end of the day. And it's, it's called whining by, Yeah, it's whining by a usurped empire, essentially. There, there's something I uh, wanted to say as well, which is that the, the U.S., party line let's say that it's not an empire it's just training and advising we can actually see that that probably undermines the u.s from actually being able to utilize their state building capacity to the extent that they perhaps could otherwise because something you see with russia is that they are more willing to actually just go in and set up structures so we have uh, katarov for example uh in chechnya there's also um, these breakaway states that are discussed in the piece itself. So there are uh, six states which have essentially, they've declared independence, but they're unrecognized by pretty much everyone except Russia and each other. So these are uh, Abkhazia, uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, um, South Ossetia in the Caucasus, and you have Transnistria. Um, and then we have the two in eastern Ukraine. Uh, so a total of six there. But... Now, none of these states are, like, necessarily well-run states, right? There's not, uh, there's no economic miracle happening or anything. They're quite isolated. But it's worth noting that uh, Russia's willingness to just go in and essentially treat them as Russian protectorates has meant that they haven't really been retaken, uh, even in cases like where, where Georgia is a U.S.-aligned country, um, it, it's never uh, retaken the breakaway regions, and those regions are still functionally under the control of Russian-aligned forces. Uh, whereas the U.S., despite having probably far greater knowledge of how to properly structure and run a government, uh, 
will not do stuff like that. And, you know, may maybe there's things like uh, expense that come up as well. But if if we accept that there's some amount of realpolitik going on behind uh, conflicts like Iraq or Libya, like very just hard-nosed oil interests, well, presumably then having a stable government in those regions that's just like an American viceroy running it would be acceptable to those entrenched interests. And yet America doesn't do that. And it's interesting to, you know, it, it's an open question how much of this is having to maintain this idea that it's not an empire and how much is just, is it just, there's no coordinated effort within the U.S. government structure itself that's willing to take those steps. Yeah, well, it's, I, I, I want to say something more on the, this empire question, which is that like it's to to admit to being an empire is really um it it sort of really goes against the the liberal ideology of the United States in a very deep way like we we can't um like like for this thing this you know whatever this glorious society that we're at the top of uh for it to be based ultimately on kind of like coercion and power uh would be like that, that that's just like unthinkable to to liberalism it's of course based on like enlightenment and and philosophy and democracy and all these things right and so it's like we have this we have this um this self-conception as this democratic power and this this imperial sort of reality and these things can't really be reconciled and and so we get all this these like extremely schizophrenic and and often hilarious kind of um attempts to deal with that that uh sort of tension um but it's sort of interesting like there's there's something deeply wrong if you can't admit to yourself what you are and what you're doing um, now, as for like which direction is correct or which direction you should go, you know, I'm not going to comment on that, but there's probably some synthesis somewhere in between where it's like, all right, you know, maybe we shouldn't be doing quite as much empire as we are, um, but maybe we shouldn't also be quite as uptight about this, this like, oh yeah, we're not doing empire thing, right? Like there's this, uh, like if you had an accurate self-conception, um, that was in line with what you're actually doing, then that's like a much more um, orderly situation. Whereas if you can't can't even admit what you're actually doing, um, e e like you can't actually apply any ideals to it, right? You can't reason about it. You can't apply your ideology to it. Yeah, like you the, can't even coordinate on the end goal. Right. Like you're not you're not doing something coherent if you can't actually examine yourself honestly. Um, and so I see that as sort of like one of the big problems that America faces is that like, well, there is actually a reality that has forced us to become something like an empire. Uh, like it's not just it didn't just happen by accident. It doesn't ha didn't just happen because someone was evil or whatever. It happened because there's actually a reality to the question of empire that imposed itself on us. And, um, and, and like our ideology is unfit to deal with that reality. And it means that our empire is sort of incoherent and probably evil. And so, you know, you can contrast 
the American strategies with the strategies of the British Empire, where the British Empire is something like, okay, we'll go into to Egypt, you know, you know, late 19th century, early 20th century, we'll, we'll install basically what we would refer to as a, as a dictator who has full control. And, you know, we'll have the, the eventual goal of transferring uh, full power to the local government in maybe like 30, 50, 70, 100 years or something. Whereas the U.S. will roll into Iraq and say, okay, we'll have basically the equivalent of some kind of a viceroy for like a year, and then we'll just like offload it completely onto whatever. The international community. Well, yeah, the international community or some, some um, you know, fragile democratic state that we kind of magicked up in in a year or two or we had so some... essentially something similar to what was actually done with a lot of the post-world war ii states that came under uh, u.s alignment like japan correct right so you know the typical thing is you know for each one of these states that we try and set up a new democratic regime in there will be a few uh people of 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 good quality and who are u.s educated uh, and who abide by liberal norms and will say, well, we'll just kind of parachute them in from from Brooklyn or or wherever, somewhere on the East Coast or something. We'll just parachute them, the kind of, you know, deep state there. We'll parachute them into Iraq and and we'll just see how that goes. And and it seems to me that that those people, despite having more cultural familiarity um, with the local situation have the same blind spots that the rest of of uh the u.s statecraft apparatus has with respect to uh that country and so they'll end up uh running running elections which does satisfy the international community but it's it's unclear what that even means to anyone there and certainly uh you know in, in places like afghanistan Elections, as far as people on the ground are concerned, a lot of people, because it's it's you know it's a sizable country, uh, it's unclear that any of them care about elections as a means for legitimacy, and uh, in fact, it's something they would probably reject. But it's our default assumption that that in order for a state to be legitimate, uh, it has to be via some sort of consent of the governed, expressed via this sort of quixotic uh, democratic ritual. Um, so, so there's the problem. There's a couple problems there. You know, the first being, uh, it's unclear that that ought to be the only method of establishing legitimacy. And then, second, I think for many people on the ground in Afghanistan, they would actually themselves reject that conception of legitimacy. I think there was a final piece we wanted to discuss as well. Yeah. Right, yeah. Okay. So I, I can talk a little bit about this. This was the um, Sonia Man piece on gun control, printing guns, technology, the internet, and the whole cypherpunk thing. Um, this was a really interesting article. Um, basically, I, I won't go into too much of what was said in the article, but there's this there's this thing going on now, which is that um, you you have these people basically trying to work on printing guns, uh, print like, or really digitized home manufacturing is kind of a term that I, I would use to describe this. Basically that uh, making stuff in your garage using kind of plans off the internet without high levels of expertise. Um, and, and so 3D printers are obviously a huge part in this. Um, 
cheap CNC machines are a huge part in this. And so obviously one of the things you can make in your garage if you have such equipment is guns, or at least this is the idea. So people are trying to come up with plans and generally promote the idea of building guns uh, using this digitized home manufacturing kind of stuff um, with the objective of having like untraceable off off the books uh, guns that cannot be... Um, you know, regulated by the government or like can't be, uh, can't be traced or like can't be stopped or whatever. So there's this very like, um, anarchistic, um, confrontational rhetoric of like, yeah, the government can't stop us. We're going to print the guns. Uh, and, um, and, and so the piece is kind of commenting on, on, first of all, the, the background of that whole situation, um, with characters like Cody Wilson and Defense Distributed and, and the other guys who are working in this area trying to make this happen. Um, but it, so it first of all comments on that background, but then also takes note of the fact that like this could only ever fly in America. And if you really examine it, the, the rhetoric is and, and even and like the conception of the, the sort of political battle that these people are engaged in is very much a a legal thing, right? Like people are talking about using the first amendment to safeguard the second amendment, right? These are, these are not sort of abstract moral principles. These are, uh, laws, fundamental laws in a particular, uh, legal order uh, of the United States. Um, and, and, you know, the whole thing becomes court battles and so on, uh, fighting over whether or not people are allowed to share the plans or whether or not people are allowed to print the guns and whether they have to register the guns, uh, stuff like this. Um, and, and so some of the things that have happened there recently are like, uh, a couple of years ago, California made it so that if you make these homemade ghost guns, which has always been legal in America, you've always been in been allowed to kind of make your own guns and it's always been basically unrestricted except i think you're not allowed to make fully automatic uh weapons or like larger than certain calibers i'm i'm not sure what the restrictions are since like the 1930s um but you've always been allowed to make your own guns basically and you never had to register them or anything like that um but california has has recently made it so that if you make your own gun at home or if you finish one of these um, 80%, uh, sort of, uh, guns where, where it's mostly done and you just need to do a few, ma few manufacturing operations at home so that you actually did it, at least technically make the gun yourself. Um, uh, they, they made it so that if you make a ghost gun, you have to register it. You have to like put a serial number on it, etc. So that's something that's happened recently. Um, and, Defense Distributed has started uh, distributing their files again recently, I think. I'm not sure the details of all that. Anyway, so there's this, this very interesting background of, of kind of the cypherpunk movement crossing over with the, the, the gun people kind of movement trying to use technology and digitized home manufacturing to make gun control basically impossible. That's the, that's the rhetoric, but it ultimately comes down to being something of a legal battle. It's a, it's, you know, Cody Wilson himself is a lawyer. Uh, the thing is phrased and strategized and played in terms of legal battles. Um, and so I thought that that was a really interesting thing to point out. And so I was very happy to get this article, 
where we had that where we had a chance to kind of comment on that that part of the the situation that it isn't like this isn't necessarily just technology has has you know independent of the human order changed the landscape it's not like if the government actually wanted to stop you from making guns and they were determined about this they couldn't do that right like they can they are, they do monitor everyone's internet traffic they do monitor everyone's purchases the technology isn't actually there to make you know a heat treated rifled barrel at home using uh digitized home manufacturing you still have to buy that part uh, online or, or at the store or whatever, and those parts could become regulated, right? There's all kinds of things that the state could do to step in and make make home manufacturing of guns illegal. But what the home manufacturing does is it it forces an issue, right? Which is it forces uh, an, an additional legal complication of this overlap between free speech and um, and the the right to bear arms, I guess. And so it's it's part of this um, legal strategy to to kind of force the state to change how it's doing the 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 regulation, and it's part of a broader class of strategies. Is something that was mentioned in the piece, which is that you use kind of a technological vanguard um, to force some condition into existence or force some uh, some foothold that then becomes this legal test issue and then you fight over that it's sort of like you've got this this technological foothold in the legal space that the state could come and crush but now you've got like uh, a place from which to fight the legal battle and so it's this really interesting tactic that has been used all over the place so cryptocurrencies are are sort of doing this in the sense that they're forcing themselves into existence uh you know they're using rhetoric like the state can't shut us down but I think ultimately, if the state really wanted to, they could probably shut them down. Uh, but the the existence of the cryptocurrencies now makes it very difficult. It means that now there's actually a legal battle to be had. Same thing with companies like Uber and Airbnb, where they kind of force themselves into existence. They're almost breaking the law at the beginning. And by the time the law catches up to them, they've got this foothold. And, and now it becomes a, a sort of fightable legal battle. It strikes me that th this is definitely um, a very American type of battle, as I think you were saying earlier, in that yeah. uh, I think most countries, right, because even most English-speaking uh, countries have some version of this tradition, right, of the, the free rights-bearing individual uh, and, and even some version of the individual being armed, but most other English-speaking countries, I think the discussion would go some iteration of, okay, let's look at the right to speech. The right to speech exists for a certain reason, um, you know, say, being able to express a, a political opinion, etc. Does it exist so that we people can, like, increase firepower in this way? Uh, and you'd sort of have a yes or no. It's interesting to me that in the U.S. itself, that... The, the way the right is conceived of is is in a way an end in itself, right? Uh, where that yeah. discussion is actually precluded. So I definitely agree. This is a very American uh, cultural problem and legal yeah, so problem, it, even. It, it it's interesting. Like it, uh, as you're saying, it kind of comes down to the sacralization of the Constitution in the United States, which is like the Constitution, you know, 
given by these divinely inspired founders has set out these these inalienable rights that you know we must uphold um and you know never mind why or for what purpose right and and that and that creates this this landscape on which you get these kinds of interesting political conflicts so it's like really like like the, the way i want to approach this this discussion and this article it's not like oh yeah this is a good thing or this is a bad thing or like you know we we should print more guns or we should somehow stop these people but like no it's it's just it's a very interesting uh, and, and in many ways revealing type of political conflict. And it's an interesting tactic. And we can ask like, okay, well, is this kind of thing going to happen more? Where else can it happen? Is this like a, is this peculiar to America or is it something that could happen everywhere? Um, just, just like use it as a test case of like, let's try to understand the world through the lens of this issue. What can we learn? Um, and I just, so I found it very interesting as like this example where politics and law and technology have all kind of bled into each other and um and like you know technology changes the landscape of possibilities a little bit which makes something possible which makes it possible to like break edge cases in the law which makes it possible to like fight political battles that previously weren't possible to fight it's just this really interesting kind of interplay between those issues and that's yeah. how I'm, and I'm i was gonna say obviously the if you're on the the sort of crypto anarchist your goal you are weaponizing the uh the first amendment in terms of your goal yeah. actually being to radically limit and fracture the power of the state but it's it also strikes me that if you look at this say in venezuela right let's say that uh, opposition people in venezuela started printing their own guns uh by virtue, the same thing that makes this appealing to your crypto anarchist also makes it hard to like block anyone who's not ideologically aligned with you out of using it. So, in that case, uh, the you know a state could as well share that same uh, that that same code. The, the you know you can have your own supporters using the same technology and increase their firepower. So anywhere where there's a proxy conflict happening, right, it won't just be your your anti-state types who are using this. Uh, American-backed rebel groups in any part of the world could use the same technology. So the, it's interesting that there are these ideological values being implicitly attributed to this technology, which don't seem right. to be at all apparent. Yeah, well, I think I think like if the if a state wanted to arm its people, if you had kind of a, a like if you had a state that wanted to arm a bunch of its supporters, yeah, Venezuela um, the colectivos as an example, right, right. If Venezuela wants to arm the colectivos, um, in that case, like the, the most efficient thing is going to be set up centralized manufacturing of high quality, uh, <laughs> high quality firearms, um, and. Because, like, it's actually just the economies are not there to be able to manufacture firearms at home. Like, you can almost technically do some of the parts. Um, and, and, like, you can make a working lower receiver for an AR-15 uh, on a 3D printer or on a home CNC machine. But I've never heard of anyone doing a proper heat-treated barrel and... And like the the combustion chamber, what's that part of the the, the gun called? But um, but but like the like those parts, are, which are really you know the actual heart of the gun is is really the barrel, and um, 
and that stuff is like very difficult to do on on home machinery. Uh, you can't just print it because it needs like precise surface finishes and so on. Um, and so that stuff, like sort of more centralized manufacturing, would make sense for it. And so like this kind of gets into broader questions of like, will the digitized home manufacturing like generally decentralize manufacturing and take over things? And will we just like download all our products in the future and stuff? And I think the answer to that is no, because these advances in technology, they don't just serve the the decentralized stuff. They also serve the centralized stuff and the centralized stuff will always have better, um, better sort of economies of scale. Yeah, better but coordination. Where, where, but where this stuff can sort of make make a difference is um, if the centralized manufacturing would get blown up because, you know, you're actually, let's say the Venezuelan government's not on board and the collectivos want to arm themselves. Um, now, now, you know, if they can sort of get a bit of machinery and, and do some stuff in their garage, get some plans, now they're able to do things... Um, like like without necessarily the help of a state but even that actually becomes now that i think about it like becomes difficult because you still have to get these like precise machines which are 3d printers and yeah CNC well there's a certain level and, of technological input uh that has to exist for this particular technology to be actually used because i mean it's already the case uh, the poorest countries in the world you've always been able to uh, traffic or uh, send guns into those countries. Yeah, uh, I mean, th this is a technology is that benefits people in advanced countries to an extent, or at least countries that have uh, the enough investment that, like, networks of people are using 3D printing and uh, the sort of technology. Yeah, I mean, I, like, at the current level, to really deflate the whole thing, like, as much as I think it's interesting to really deflate the whole thing, it's like, it's, it, what this technology is for is gun hobbyists in rich countries that have permissive laws and markets where you can buy all the hard to make gun parts like um you know in the united states like the reason it's even possible to make an ar-15 at home is well first of all an ar-15 is like lego right it, it, mm. it's got a bunch of different parts they're all standardized you just buy them you put them together but there's the one part that that is technically the firearm which is the lower receiver um and, and by technically i mean legally um, and that's the part that people are making at home because, you know, to buy a lower receiver at a gun shop or online requires all kinds of registrations and background checks and, and et cetera. Um, but, um, but you can make a, a lower receiver in your garage um, and then buy all the rest of the parts. But, but you're, you still need this market support of like well can you buy a barrel can you buy an upper receiver can you buy like the handguard can you buy the the trigger kit and all this all this other stuff that you're not going to make at home so it's, it's also unclear to me uh the you know the point of a lot of this this stuff beyond uh you know an interesting sort of like gun hobbyist experience there's always you know the narrative that attracts people of of some sort of like outlaw cyberpunk uh, don't tread on me sort of aesthetic and and that's very that's very um, American in a sense but uh, that doesn't mean it's not LARP for example uh, the reality is is that really the, the it doesn't matter the number of guns you have in your house uh, you're basically going to take 
state over overreach um, without much opposition. Uh, you know, I, for for basically my entire adult life, if you're on the you know sort of like gun hobbyist forums. There's endless talk of, you know, if the government does this or if the government does that, that you know, there's going to be a a redneck revolution or something. We're all going to get up, you know, in our Ford F-150s and and drive on Washington, D.C. And the reality is that that's not going to happen. Um, There have been plenty of instances in U.S. history of strong federal government overreach. There there's you know, there hasn't been. A, a, a successful coordinated pushback against that in any way. Nobody's drawing firing lines around their house to to take down the government in, in any any serious way that that works. Yeah, well, we it's won't. like even if you did, you're not self sufficient enough to keep it up. Like the government can always just wait you out, right? It's like right, exactly. oh, and like that, it's like yeah, we're not actually going to come get your guns. We're just going to make it illegal for you to hold them. And like if you ever step outside of your firing line and have to like buy something from the store. You right. know, now, good luck. Citizen. And that's exactly historically what we've seen, these people being waited out. Yeah. Um, As usual, it'll be the French, and they'll do it with fistcuffs and molotovs. Well, I, I, anyways, I mean, there is one, uh, like, not to be too down on this whole thing. Like, I think there are interesting use cases for these, like, ghost guns. Um, and, and one of the things, like, the, one of the cases where I could see it being legitimately useful is, like, you know, let's say I want an AR-15 in California. It's like technically AR-15s are illegal or whatever, but AR-15 pattern rifles are fine uh, in California. Um, so let's say I wanted an AR-15. You know, I have to go through all this California paperwork. I have to like register everything. But if I make my own gun, I actually kind of don't really have to do that, or at least until recently, you didn't have to um, legally. And and now it's still like. You know, it's unclear how enforced that law is going to be and, and like how, how at least how efficiently enforced. Um, so, you know, it might not be that like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go up against the government. It might not be that. But just like, look, I don't trust the, the California government and I don't want my name in some database somewhere as one of those hateful gun owners. Right. But like maybe I still want to own a gun. Um, and And so, like, I could see. I could see it being useful as like this very low level form of like hedging against cer- certain things like, okay, I just don't want to be in the database, you know? Uh, and, and that's, that's something that like makes sense to me. Not like I'm going to fight the government, but I don't want to be in that particular database. Yeah. I'm obviously, uh, you know, overcorrecting to make a point here, uh, which is that, in order to accomplish what it sets out to do, in 99% of cases, the government does not need to force a armed confrontation with you at your house, mm-hmm. right? Like everything you would hope the government would, or, or that the gun would protect against, uh, the government does not need to come to your house with a, a, a gun at your head in order to, uh, you know, enact some policy change that, that it wants to do. Like whether it's, whether it's, you know, seizing the gold or, or whatever, or, or, you know, just any number of, of policy changes. Uh, you yeah, know. well, I mean, look, look, like to bring this back to to the Venezuela thing and the Russia thing, it's like to, to really get to the level of guns against the U.S. government, what you're talking right. about is sovereignty, right? You're trying to build a sovereign country 
Um, and, and you're not just trying to build a sovereign country in South America or Asia or something with lots of other people and lots of capacity and so on. You're trying to build a sovereign country on the territory of the United States, uh, in, in a sense. And, and like, you know, good luck, man. Venezuela couldn't, couldn't hack it. Like, uh, the, and they, they have plenty of guns and plenty of all sorts of other stuff. Like they're just, they're just way more capable of this than than like random joe citizen is um so it's like i don't know the, the bravado kind of rhetoric of of like guns against the u.s government it, it just seems completely silly to me because like there are many dimensions of power and to to like become independent along all of them is to become sovereign and like you're just not going to become sovereign on u.s soil i want to it's plug our piece here on uh why political violence won't happen in america which was an excellent overview of uh all of that right well yeah you know, like that's that's another dimension of the problem is is like okay well to actually do this level of sovereignty you'd need like you know a whole bunch of people willing to use uh, coordinated violence and and like that's not going to happen these days. Yeah, in, in various uh, you know standoffs that we've seen uh, recently, it's kind of been comical. Like you know, a quarter or half of the guys have been feds outright. Uh, a lot of them, when they're when they're uh, standing off with say the FBI or local police or something, they're they're busy doing like YouTube live streams. Um, you know, they lose in the end. The government gets what it wants. Uh, maybe if they're lucky, there was like a procedural error or something. And so the case gets thrown out. But ultimately, like they don't accomplish really what they set out to accomplish. And certainly a lot of them have more lofty goals uh, than than, um, you know, just just telling the government to piss off in one instance. Those never seem to come through. And a lot of them uh, are often too individualistic to coordinate at a level uh, where they could even aim to achieve sovereignty and 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 to make to make some more comments on on like the the like the fears people have about you know there's going to be all these ghost guns all these criminals are going to have guns and shoot people and so on um like you know it'll increase the number of gun deaths or whatever i i think those fears are actually overblown as well just because for the same reason basically which is this not going to happen at scale by like this this gun printing thing it's not going to happen at scale by um you know by bad actors it's it's too inefficient it's it's not quite gonna work and if the state really wanted to come after it like it does not pose a real threat except in this sort of legal battle of like should law-abiding people be allowed to own guns etc um and so like there's, there's sort of like the rhetoric from both sides on on this issue, I think, is like quite overblown. And what I really see as the interesting core of the issue is that theoretical point of how these technological strategies can interplay with political strategies and legal strategies. Yep. Uh, so I think that about wraps it up for for that topic, meaning we are out of time for, for this episode. Thanks everyone for listening to the Palladium Podcast episode number three. And uh, it's time to sign off. Yeah, I, I think we had a lot of fun this time. I really like this discussion. Yeah, I'm very, I'm very glad uh, with the Venezuela piece that we got that out. I've had people coming saying it's one of the best pieces they've read on the topic. So thanks to Miguel and uh, everyone else who worked on that one. And thanks for everyone for patching in. 
Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it better be the best on that topic because uh, I, this mean, I think palladium. This is palladium. <laughs> exactly. Of course we were there. Of course we were there. All right. Uh, thanks, everyone, for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode. See ya. See ya.